Volume Two, Section Six of the Life of Charlotte Bronte. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julie Vermolichem. The Life of Charlotte Bronte, by Elizabeth Glacken Gaskell, Volume Two, Section Six. I take Charlotte's own words as the best record of her thoughts and feelings during all this terrible time. April 12th. I read Anne's letter to you. It was touching enough, as you say. If there were no hope beyond this world, no eternity, no life to come, Emily's fate, and that which threatens Anne, would be heartbreaking. I cannot forget Emily's death day. It becomes a more fixed, a darker, a more frequently recurring idea in my mind than ever. It was very terrible. She was torn, conscious, panting, reluctant, though resolute, out of a happy life. But it will not do to dwell on these things. I am glad your friends object to your going with Anne. It would never do. To speak truth, even if your mother and sisters had consented, I never could. It is not that there is any labourer's attention to pay her. She requires and will accept but little nursing. But there would be hazard and anxiety of mind beyond what you ought to be subject to. If a month or six weeks hence she continues to wish for a change as much as she does now, I shall, dear Valente, go with her myself. It will certainly be my paramount duty. Other cares must be made subservient to that. I have consulted Mr. T. He does not object, and recommends Scarborough, which was Anne's own choice. I trust affairs may be so ordered that you may be able to be with us at least part of the time. Whether in lodgings or not, I should wish to be boarded, providing oneself is, I think, an insupportable nuisance. I don't like keeping provisions in a cupboard, locking up, being pillaged, and all that. It is a petty, wearing annoyance. The progress of Anne's illness was slower than that of Emily's had been, and she was too unselfish to refuse trying means, from which, if she herself had little hope of benefit, her friends might hereafter derive a mournful satisfaction. I began to flatter myself she was getting strength, but the change the frost has told upon her. She suffers more of late. Still her illness has none of the fearful rapid symptoms which uphold in Emily's case. Could she only get over the spring, I hope summer may do much for her. And then early removal to a warmer locality for the winter might at least prolong her life. Could we only reckon upon another year, I should be thankful. But can we do this for the healthy? A few days ago I wrote to have Dr. Forbes' opinion. He warned us against entertaining sanguine hopes of recovery. The cod-liver oil he considers a peculiarly efficacious medicine. He too disapproved of change of residence for the present. There is some feeble consolation in thinking we are doing the very best that can be done. The agony of forced total neglect is not now felt as during Emily's illness. Never may we be doomed to feel such agony again. 
It was terrible. I have felt much less of the disagreeable pains in my chest lately, and much less also of the soreness and hoarseness. I tried an application of hot vinegar, which seemed to do good. May 1st. I was glad to hear that when we go to Scarborough, you will be at liberty to go with us. But the journey and its consequences still continue a source of great anxiety to me. I must try to put it off two or three weeks longer if I can. Perhaps, by that time, the milder season may have given Anne more strength. Perhaps it will be otherwise. I cannot tell. The change to fine weather has not proved beneficial to her so far. She has sometimes been so weak and suffered so much from pain in the side during the last few days that I have not known what to think. She may rally again and be much better, but there must be some improvement before I can feel justified in taking her away from home. Yet to delay is painful, for as is always the case, I believe under her circumstances she seems herself not half conscious of the necessity for such delay. She wonders, I believe, why I don't talk more about the journey. It grieves me to think she may even be hurt by my seeming tardiness. She is very much emaciated, far more than when you were with us. Her arms are no thicker than a little child's. The least exertion brings a shortness of breath. She goes out a little every day, but we creep rather than walk. Papa continues pretty well. I hope I shall be enabled to bear up. So far, I have reason for thankfulness to God. May had come and brought the milder weather longed for, but Anne was worse for the very change. A little later on it became colder, and she rallied, and poor Charlotte began to hope that if May were once over, she might last for a long time. Miss Bronte rode to engage the lodgings at Scarborough, a place which Anne had formerly visited with the family to whom she was governess. They took a good-sized sitting-room, and an airy double-bedroom, both commanding a sea-view, in one of the best situations of the town. Money was as nothing in comparison with life. Besides, Anne had a small legacy left to her by her godmother, and they felt that she could not better employ this than in obtaining what might prolong life, if not restore health. On May 16th, Charlotte writes, It is with a heavy heart I prepare, and earnestly do I wish the fatigue of the journey were well over. It may be borne better than I expect, for temporary stimulus often does much. But when I see the daily increasing weakness, I know not what to think. I fear you will be shocked when you see Anne. But be on your guard, dear E, not to express your feelings. Indeed, I can trust both your self-possession and your kindness. I wish my judgment sanctioned the step of going to Scarborough, more fully than it does. You ask how I have arranged about leaving Papa. I could make no special arrangement. He wishes me to go with Anne, and would not hear of Miss Anne's coming, or anything of that kind. So I do what I believe is for the best, 
and leave the result to Providence. They planned to rest and spend the night at York, and, at Anne's desire, arranged to make some purchases there. Charlotte's answer of the letter to her friend, in which she tells her all this with May 23rd. I wish it seemed less like a dreary mockery in us to talk of buying bonnets, etc. Anne was very ill yesterday. She had difficulty of breathing all day, even when sitting perfectly still. Today she seems better again. I long for the moment to come when the experiment of the sea air will be tried. Will it do her good? I cannot tell. I can only wish. Oh, if it would please God to strengthen and revive Anne, how happy we might be together. His will, however, be done. The two sisters left Haworth on Thursday, May 24th. They were to have done so the day before, and had made an appointment with their friend to meet them at the Leeds station, in order that they might all proceed together. But on Wednesday morning Anne was so ill that it was impossible for the sisters to set out. Yet they had no means of letting their friend know of this, and she consequently arrived at Leeds station at the time specified. There she sat waiting for several hours. It struck her as strange at the time, and it almost seems ominous to her fancy now, that twice over, from two separate arrivals on the line by which she was expecting her friends, coffins were carried forth, and placed in hearses which were in waiting for their dead, as she was waiting for one in four days to become so. The next day she could bear suspense no longer, and set out for Haworth, reaching there just in time to carry the feeble, fainting invalid into the chairs which stood at the gate to take them down to Keeley. The servant, who stood at the parsonage gates, saw death written on her face and spoke of it. Charlotte saw it and did not speak of it. It would have been giving the dread too distinct a form, and if this last darling yearned for the change to Scarborough, go she should, however Charlotte's heart might be wrung by impending fear. The lady who accompanied them, Charlotte's beloved friend of more than twenty years, has kindly written out for me the following account of the journey and of the end. She left her home, May 24th, 1849, died May 28th. Her life was calm, quite spiritual. Such was her end. Through the trials and fatigues of the journey, she evinced the pious courage and fortitude of a martyr. Dependence and helplessness were ever with her a far sorer trial than heart-wracking pain. The first stage of our journey was to York, and here the dear invalid was so revived so cheerful and so happy, redue consolation, and trusted that at least temporary improvement was to be derived from the change which she had so longed for, and her friends had so dreaded for her. By her request we went to the minster, and to her it was an overpowering pleasure, not for its own imposing and impressive grandeur only, 
but because it brought to her sceptical nature a vital and overwhelming sense of omnipotence. She said, while gazing at the structure, A finite power can do this. What is he? And here emotion stayed her speech, and she was hastened to a less exciting scene. Her weakness of body was great, but her gratitude for every mercy was greater. After such an exertion as walking to her bedroom, she would clasp her hands and raise her eyes in silent thanks, and she did this not to the exclusion of wanted prayer, for that too was performed on bended knee, ere she accepted the rest of her couch. On the twenty-fifth we arrived at Scarborough, our dear invalid, having during the journey directed our attention to every prospect worthy of notice. On the twenty-sixth she drove on the sands for an hour, unless the poor donkey should be urged by its driver to a greater speed than her tender heart thought right. She took the reins and drove herself. When joined by her friend, she was charging the boy-master of the donkey to treat the poor animal well. She was ever fond of dumb things, and would give up her own comfort for them. On Sunday, the 27th, she wished to go to church, and to ride brightened with the thought of once more worshipping her God amongst her fellow-creatures. We thought it prudent to dissuade her from the attempt, though it was evident her heart was longing to join in the public act of devotion and praise. She walked a little in the afternoon, and meeting with a sheltered and comfortable seat near the beach, she begged we would leave her, and enjoy the various scenes near at hand, which were new to us but familiar to her. She loved the place, and wished us to share her preference. The evening closed in with the most glorious sunset ever witnessed. The castle on the cliff stood in proud glory, gilded by the rays of the declining sun. The distant ships glittered like burnished gold. The little boats near the beach heaved on the ebbing tide, inviting occupants. The view was grand beyond description. Anne was drawn in her easy chair to the window to enjoy the scene with us. Her face became illumined, almost as much as a glorious scene she gazed upon. Little was said, for it was plain that her thoughts were driven by the imposing view before her to penetrate forwards to the regions of unfading glory. She gained thought of public worship, and wished us to leave her, and join those who were assembled at the house of God. We declined, gently urging the duty and pleasure of staying with her, who was now so dear and so feeble. On returning to her place near the fire, she conversed with her sister upon the propriety of returning to their home. She did not wish it for her own sake. She said she was fearing others might suffer more if her disease occurred where she was. She probably thought the task of accompanying her lifeless remains on a long journey was more than her sister could bear more than the bereaved father could bear, where she borne home another, and a third tenant of the family vault in the short space of nine months. The night was passed without any apparent accession of illness. She rose at seven o'clock, and performed most of her toilet herself, by her expressed wish. 
Her sister always yielded such points, believing it was the truest kindness not to press inability when it was not acknowledged. Nothing occurred to excite alarm till about eleven a.m. She then spoke of feeling a change. She believed she had not long to live. Could she reach home alive if we prepared immediately for departure? A physician was sent for. Her address to him was made with perfect composure. She begged him to say how long he thought she might live, not to fear speaking the truth, for she was not afraid to die. The doctor reluctantly admitted that the angel of death was already arrived, and that life was ebbing fast. She thanked him for his truthfulness, and he departed to come again very soon. She still occupied her easy chair, looking so serene, so reliant there was no opening for grief as yet, so all knew the separation was at hand. She clasped her hands and reverently invoked a blessing from on high, first upon her sister, then upon her friend, to whom she said, Be a sister in my stead. Give Charlotte as much of your company as you can. She then thanked each for her kindness and attention. Ere long the restlessness of approaching death appeared, and she was borne to the sofa. On being asked if she were easier, she looked gratefully at her questioner and said, It is not you who can give me ease, but soon all will be well through the merits of our Redeemer. Shortly after this, seeing that her sister could hardly restrain her grief, she said, Take courage, Charlotte, take courage. Her face never failed, and her eye never dimmed, till about two o'clock, when she calmly and without a sigh passed from the temporal to the eternal. So still, and so hallowed were her last hours and moments. There was no thought of assistance or of dread. The doctor came and went two or three times. The hostess knew that death was near. Yet so little was the house disturbed by the presence of the dying, and the sorrow of those so nearly bereaved, that dinner was announced as ready through the half-open door, as a living sister was closing the eyes of the dead one. She could now no more stay the welled-up grief of her sister with her emphatic and dying, take courage, and it burst forth in brief but agonizing strength. Charlotte's affection, however, had another channel, and there returned in thought, in care, and in tenderness. There was bereavement, but there was not solitude. Sympathy was at hand, and it was accepted. With calmness came the consideration of the removal of the dear remains to their home-resting place. This melancholy task, however, was never performed, for the afflicted sister decided to lay the flower in the place where it had fallen. She believed that to do so would accord with the wishes of the departed. She had no preference for place. She thought not of the grave, for that is but the body's goal, but of all that is beyond it. Her remains rest where the south sun warms the now dear sod.
where the ocean billows lave and strike the steep and turf-covered rock. And died on the Monday. On the Tuesday, Charlotte wrote to her father, but knowing that his presence was required for some annual church solemnity at Howes, she informed him that she had made all necessary arrangement for the interment, and that a funeral would take place so soon that he could hardly arrive in time for it. The surgeon who had visited Anne on the day of her death offered his attendance, but it was respectfully declined. Mr. Bronte wrote to urge Charlotte's longer stay at the seaside. Her health and spirits were sorely shaken, and much as he naturally longed to see his only remaining child, he felt it right to persuade her to take with a friend a few more weeks' change of scene, though even that could not bring change of thought. Late in June the friends returned homewards, parting rather suddenly, it would seem, from each other, when their paths diverged. July 1849 I intended to have written a line to you to-day, if I had not received yours. We did indeed part suddenly. It made my heart ache that you were severed without the time to exchange a word. And yet perhaps it was better. I got here a little before eight o'clock. All was clean and bright waiting for me. Papa and the servants were well, and all received me with an affection which should have consoled. The dogs seemed in strange ecstasy. I am certain they regarded me as a harbinger of others. The dumb creatures thought that as I was returned, those who had been so long absent were not far behind. I left Papa soon, and went into the dining-room. I shut the door. I tried to be glad that I was come home. I have always been glad before, except once. Even then I was cheered. But this time joy was not to be the sensation. I felt that the house was all silent. The rooms were all empty. I remembered where the three were laid, in what narrow dark dwellings, never more to reappear on earth. So the sense of desolation and bitterness took possession of me. The agony that was to be undergone, and was not to be avoided, came on. I underwent it, and passed a dreary evening and night, and a mournful morrow. Today I am better. I do not know how life will pass, but I certainly do feel confidence in him who has upheld me hitherto. Solitude may be cheered, and made endurable beyond what I can believe. The great trial is when evening closes and night approaches. At that hour, we used to assemble in the dining-room. We used to talk. Now I sit by myself. Necessarily I am silent. I cannot help thinking of their last days, remembering their sufferings, and what they said and did, and how they looked in mortal affliction. Perhaps all this will become less poignant in time. Let me thank you once more, dear E, for your kindness to me, 
which I do not mean to forget. How did you think of looking at your home? Papa thought me a little stronger. He said my eyes were not so sunken. July 14th, 1849 I do not much like giving an account of myself. I like better to go out of myself and talk of something more cheerful. My cold, wherever I got it, whether at Easton or elsewhere, is not vanished yet. It began in my head. Then I had a sore throat, and then a sore chest with a cough, but only a trifling cough, which I still have at times. The pain between my shoulders likewise amazed me much. Say nothing about it, for I confess I am too much disposed to be nervous. This nervousness is a horrid phantom. I dare communicate no ailment to Papa. His anxiety harasses me inexpressibly. My life is what I expected it to be. Sometimes, when I wake in the morning, I know that solitude, remembrance and longing are to be almost my sole companions all day through, that at night I shall go to bed with them, that they will long keep me sleepless, that next morning I shall wake to them again. Sometimes now I have a heavy heart of it. But crushed I am not yet, nor robbed of elasticity, nor of hope, nor quite of endeavour. I have some strength to fight the battle of life. I am aware, and can acknowledge, I have many comforts, many mercies. Still I can get on. But I do hope and pray that never may you or any one I love be placed as I am. To sit in a lonely room, the clock ticking loud through a still house, and have open before the mind's eye the record of the last year, with its shocks, sufferings, losses, is a trial. I write to you freely, because I believe you will hear me with moderation, that you will not take alarm, or think me in any way worse off than I am. End of section 6